This is Umami Conversations. Conversations to feed your soul. Thank you for leaving a review on Apple and Spotify and rating us. Enjoy this episode. Blessing. Look, I used to envision the end of the world at that age. I used wow. to be outside on the playground. And I would, when I was little, I used to tell my mom that I can't feel my hands or I can't feel my feet. And that was when my anxiety was at a high level. But at the time, I didn't, you didn't I know it was I didn't anxiety. know what it was. That was offered to her on a silver platter. Yeah. You dip yourself in this water and you give your life to Christ. Yeah. Sincerely, you truly desire to change your life around. Yeah. God will grant you forgiveness. It'll be under the blood. You'll never have to deal with it again. And so I can understand. And I've, I was insulted. Yeah. And then they told me that, what do they tell the pastor? I was like, tell him what he wants. He's like, but he's going to remove you under the blood. You're going to be left at the mercy of the devil. Hey, beautiful people. We are back with another epic episode. Uh, this is a conversation that I had with a dear friend, Fofo. They share about their experience growing up in a cult. This is a two-part episode. Watch out for part two next week. Make sure that you are ready to tune in simply because this could be triggering. It, it is a sensitive topic that we are touching based on. I'm going to share a little bit about who Fofo is, what they aspire to be, and their offering to the world. So Fofo grew up in Montreal and was raised by Haitian immigrant parents. They are Picasso a cat parent, a plant parent, and an artist. They replenish themselves in nature with their fur babies, with fun, elevated conversations, and in the presence of their chosen family. They were raised in what they consider to be a religious cult, where they worshipped Jesus, but also believed in an end-time messenger. They took the decision to leave at the age of 28 when confronted with too many inconsistencies, covered up abuse, judgment, and eventually their own queerness. Since then, they have new aspirations for life. They want to create visual, musical, and spiritual work of art that center on the well-being of the Haitian people and the deconstructions of toxic cultural traits, mostly the inheritance of colonialism and slavery. They want to create artistic pathways that lead to embracing empathy and compassion, in more concrete ways and help in changing the way we view and treat children in our culture. They want to contribute with patience, understanding, and love. They want to contribute to safe spaces for marginalized voices and for healing through the means of cultural practice. This is I Was Raised in a Cult with Fofo. Enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Sephora. All my of it. My yes. beautiful my dear, and lovely, dear, dear friend. lovely friend, mm-hmm. sister. Yes. Yes. Um, we're here today. Today's uh, today is special. Today is really special. Today is super special. <laughs> I I don't even know how to start, but um, I I, I actually want to give a little background um of who Sephora is. I guess to me, and she might not know this, but or and where we met each other. So uh, I know Sephora from high school. We met um uh, in our I don't know how they say like grade seven, eight, nine. I don't know. Like uh, uh was that annex? High right? school. Where was? Like it the was, first, uh, the first year of high school, because in Quebec it's like five year years of school. high school. So our first year of high school is where we met. We were basically in the same class, and like we kind of like you know we I don't even remember how we connected. We just connected. Okay, the fly um, girl, the fly. Oh, give me your F. You got your F. You got your F. 
L, you got your L, you got the Give me your why. Why you got your why? Fly. Fly, girl. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so yes. Yeah. Fly Girls is a dance group that we had back in high school, and we were the Fly Girls indeed. We were indeed Fly yeah, Girls. Fly. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, one of the major things, though, about Sephora that marked me a lot was your faith. Because one of the things, Sephora, about your faith is that it was not to me at that time it wasn't only something that was outward because you know you you wore the skirt you had the natural hair you had it was like when we see you we know like she's a church girl like like <laughs> we know okay like there's no two words about it but yeah. there was also a passion behind um this faith of yours um at that time and i do i actually still have these documents somewhere in my archives where you had given me um these pamphlets of oh the the, the 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 like the church that you you used to attend and you know you were really devoted to this individual you know to mm. this prophet yes um to this prophet mm. and i just really remember us talking about like faith a lot um at that time i still went to church but i wasn't like in a in a in a in a like that you know um so but i still i still really much appreciated the conversations that we had about god i do remember we've had a few conversations about god and i guess mm-hmm. as we grew yeah you're still in a, in a, in it for a while even after high school we met we you brought him brought back the prophet mm-hmm. and then we disconnected and lo and behold a few years later I'm on Facebook and I see you talking about this church. But this time around, it's not trying to preach the gospel. This time around, it's like, yeah, so I was part of a cult, motherfuckers. <laughs> listen, listen. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I was in the cult. <laughs> you know, and I was like, hmm, this is interesting. So today, Sifo, as you know, um, we're here to talk about that. We're here to talk about that experience because you're not the first, definitely will not be the last, but many people have stayed silent about their experiences in these type of um, religious settings and organizations. Yeah. Um, so I'd like us to go back a bit. Let's go back to 1985. Yeah. Let's when go back to 1985. You're born into this beautiful family that is um, already, you know, in this religion or in this in this call. And yeah. what happens from there? Well, you know, life as a regular regular kid happens. Like my I go to I go to kindergarten. I go to uh maternelle, primaternelle, I do all of that. And I don't think it's like having an influence on who I was as a person until elementary school. Mm-hmm. When I had to you know, because even at the cusp of starting elementary school, I was also starting Sunday school. Mm-hmm. Sunday school started for children five and up. Mm-hmm. And so I was being confronted with straight away, like completely new realities from what I was hearing in church mm-hmm. and the people that I was seeing every day, the children that I was being in school with. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe in our family home, there was also an increase in anxiety, which led to a lot of 
doomsday conversation. Mm. And I think that's when I started becoming a lot more anxious. Mm. Uh, whereas before the church didn't have so much of an impact on me. Mm. Uh, it was just somewhere that I went and on Sundays and, and that's parents. it. Yeah, you know, but the sermon and the content of the message that was being preached didn't have an effect on me until I started having to share space with people from different faiths, different religions, and then starting getting attached to people too, because then I was tasked with the duty of, you know, shedding the light being a, a messenger for the messenger so that was and me which is something that I realize now as I realize that I'm a neurodivergent person is that everything for me was extremely concrete mm. so if you're telling me if I don't say to this person that God sent a prophet they're gonna go to hell mm. I will picture this person literally in hell constantly mm. and I will see myself as responsible mm. And so it kind of started playing on my relationship and the time that I wanted to spend with my friends because then I was anxious about having to tell them. And I did try a couple of times and the, the response was never good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, what are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to play. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. And yeah, so that's when I started feeling very, very, very self-aware. Uh, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it comes with that age, like seven, yeah. eight years old. Yeah. And then you're confronted with, you know, also different being from a different culture. Exactly. It was like a a bunch of things together at that point. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're seven, you're seven, eight years old. And usually what they say is like, once a child reaches that age, literally they've already, like their, their brains are already shaped into who they are. Like, like they, they, they've already, they know, like, this is who this person is. So for you, literally this duty, <laughs> like you spent seven years or five, five, six years in this mm-hmm. setting that told you that if you don't go and tell these person that Christ is coming and they need to give their lives to Christ, they're going to die. Like, and they're going to burn. Yeah. <laughs> that No, they it's not that they're going to die. They're going to burn. Right. Yes, for eternity and eternity, for eternity and eternity after going to through the great tribulation. So you were you were se- you were seven eight telling your seven eight year old friends this information. Trying, trying. You know, I would come up to them like, well, you know, do you go to church and be like, do you do you believe in Jesus? And she said, que Dieu a des prophètes. And I would like try to, you know, and most Haitian kids, because they were, I would usually try with Haitian kids because I know a lot of them are either like protestant or mm-hmm. So, But a lot of them were like, I only believe in Jesus. <laughs> and that's it. They were like, yeah, no. don't go, don't go there. Like, that's it. I don't, don't believe we, in him. Mm. Exactly. So, don't bring me no other men. Can we, can we look at like the brainwash? <laughs> because literally like having a seven eight year old um feeling like having you feel like it is your duty (laughs) it is your duty to save your other seven eight year old friends instead of just literally being a child and playing Mm. games like all of them Mm. wanted that's very traumatic (laughs) yes super traumatic um look i used to envision the end of the world at that age. I used wow. to be outside on the playground and I would, when I was little, I used to tell my mom that I can't feel my hands or I can't feel my feet. And that was when my anxiety was at a high level. But at the time, I didn't, you didn't I know it was I didn't anxiety. even know what it was. And my mom didn't know either. Mm-hmm. She used to take my hands and rub them together 
and be like, do you feel them now? Do you feel them now? And my hands and my feet would go numb so much that there are times where like it took me a while to get up because mm-hmm. I had to let all the feeling come back in my legs. And I would be standing outside on the playground and I would still faint because I would imagine like this big bomb falling like and everything just turning into oh. dust and all of us dying and me dying because I didn't tell other children that <laughs> the end of the world was coming and they need to give their not only give their life to Christ but believe in this end time message that came through his only one and only prophet for the end time which was this man from this cult and uh, that accent of feeling constant doom was mostly because my own mom it wasn't the church per se that had this heavily apocalyptic. I mean, it's apocalyptic still, but mm-hmm. my mom, and that's where for me the conversation of mental health comes in. Mm-hmm. Because when you have somebody who is emotionally suffering constantly and you give them access to the dream of a land of no suffering, mm-hmm. of a place of perfect peace and mm-hmm. perfect rest, if it has to come at the demise of the world, they will aspire to this end totally. And so my mom was suffering and she would aspire to the end of the world just so her suffering would end. And so she would constantly say things for her like, I can't wait for God to come back. I can't wait for this world to be over. I can't wait for all these things to be done with. And so her accent the, the way where she placed the accent when she would teach us about the Bible was constantly the end of the world mm. and the atrocities that would happen and the horrible things that we would see. And she was constantly, and now I understand that it was anxiety that was feeding her these dreams, mm-hmm. but she was constantly dreaming about how she was running away from demons and like carrying us with her and trying to like save us from the end of the world and trying mm-hmm. to save us from doom. And every Saturday when she sat us for a prayer meeting and Bible reading, she would tell us of a dream. She would remind us of the end of the world. She would remind us of what would happen to us if we didn't make it to the rapture. Mm-hmm. And it was intense and it was traumatizing. I remember the one time where she did it so much, my brother started crying and got up and left. Wow. Um, and I called her out at that very time. I was like, you did too much. <laughs> wow. I was like, you did too much. She's like, but I didn't say, I was like, you did too much. You did way too much. Yo, Sifra, yeah. I really love what you said about the suffering. You know, I never mm-hmm. really thought about that. The mm-hmm. fact that because she was in so much suffering, that mm-hmm. this message that we're giving her of like, literally this the the streets of gold you know where there's peace peace in heaven there's no war Mm. there's no this there's no husband and wife in heaven (laughs) there's there's nothing so there's like this deep desire of hers there's this want and this yearning to get there so no matter how many people will get hurt in this process she Mm. wants that freedom she wants yeah. to get to that line. How many other mothers and fathers are going through this? How many other are parents? They, not all of them, but most of them, they've been given that story, you know, of this heaven, 
whether heaven is there or not, whether you believe in heaven or not, that's, I mean, honestly, I personally, I'm not going to condemn anybody for that. It's not my place Mm. for it. But then it's like the way that they've portrayed this heaven, it didn't allow people to live on earth. Mm. We didn't live. Exactly. That's exactly it. We didn't live because we're going to heaven. We're going mm. to heaven. We're going to go see God. We're going to go see Jesus. Exactly. We're going to go and worship him all day, all morning, night, and, and day, and <laughs> holy, 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 and all of that stuff. We're going to lie with lions and eat yes. food of the earth and no, no longer toil and, and suffer. No more trauma. No more guilt. You know? Everything but, freedom. So, so that means that while you're on earth, it's okay to go through the trauma. It's okay to go through the guilt. It's okay to go through all of the sufferings that you are going through because you know that along the way, somewhere at the end, there is a heaven. Yeah, it justifies the end, justifies the mean. Um, I remember the prophet even said that if he had to choose between a hundred years or I can't remember how many years, but of life of luxury and, you know, never having to suffer a day in his life, but in the end, go to hell. Or I think it was like 50 years or whatever, but in the end, go to hell. He would choose like 500 years of suffering and whatever. If it means he, he, he can sit at the, at the, 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 the foot of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. At the end. So, I mean, and you know, my parents weren't even the one who made me realize that that was the yearning behind. It was another sister in the church who every time I asked her how she was doing, ah, sister, we're just waiting for the, the return of Christ. Mm. And it wasn't even said with joy. It was never said with, you know, like, ah. Oh, what a blessing we had today as a message. Oh, I can't wait till we see, like spend every Sunday just basking in the glory of God, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. invigorated. Mm-hmm. No, it was always desperate mm-hmm. and sad. And it, I could tell, well, you know, I'm not going to devolve or anything, but it, like it was evident that it's just yeah. this is going through a lot, you know, just tired, dealing with a lot with ch- the children and everything. And it was always, Sad and heavy, and every time, like I felt like being like, "Cheer up, sister," you know. But and I, it just means sad because at that point I, I was an adult, and I could see that depressive spirit already reflecting on the, the children, and it kind of all right away clicked in my head. I was like, "That was my mom." Wow, that used to be that was my mom in the house every day. Just who? And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> calm down. We, oh, like mm. desperate cries, or like, you know, I don't want to put all her business out. My mom mm. was depressed, man. My mm. mom had these down moments where she was just broken down, a broken down person. And even when she tells me the story of how she got into the message when she mm-hmm. entered there, I, I could read through everything that she wasn't saying that what she was looking for was a family Mm. and the way she spoke about the experience the way she spoke about the people um the way even she said that it was like a very 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 last minute decision Mm. because at that point she'd given up on most churches and on most like religious groups Mm. and that the the love that she found Mm. and the way she was embraced Mm -hmm. 
And again, where I kind of drew the line eventually between her story and the story of other older Haitian adults and other people in the church who at the same place of desperation came into the message is one thing that they tell you is children who go through abuse Mm -hmm. will blame themselves. They will blame themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our elders grew up in a time where corporal punishment was the only Solution. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was like, well, what you say? <laughs> you know, like it was mm-hmm. like, it's, at least I try to talk to you. But mm-hmm. back in their days, it was mm-hmm. hit, getting hit straight away. Yeah. And so the system was so strict and so unforgiving that the expectations were, were impossible for the children to meet. And so when you grew up, you grew, you grow up, sorry, in a society that demand such level of perfection from children you have no choice but to feel that you're the one that's lacking yeah especially you're when you see other children make it you're the issue yeah. Yeah. and so where this victimization comes in and this sense of guilt comes in is that when you get into a religious group that tells you or just you know just church in general tells you're you loved. you're forgiven you're forgiven god you loves know, you all your past is erased yes your sins, sins are no more. Your sins are no more. And you think you do have sins because you were getting beat as a child. You yeah. were told you were born in sin and iniquity. Mm-hmm. Uh, people call you stupid. People reject you. Uh, your parents sent you away to live with some other relatives. You, you, you know, you have to find a way to alleviate that feeling that makes you feel like you were unworthy your whole life. That internalized guilt that you carry, you need to lay it down somewhere. You need to know that you don't have to bring that with you the rest of your life. Yeah. And that was offered to her on a silver platter. Yeah. You dip yourself in this water and you give your life to Christ. Yeah. Sincerely, you truly desire to change your life around. Yeah. God will grant you forgiveness. It'll be under the blood. You'll never have to deal with it again. And so I can understand The sincerity in her heart in the moment that she took this decision, Mm -hmm. because she was really in quest for salvation. Mm -hmm. She truly was in quest to redeem herself Mm -hmm. from all the pain that she was carrying. Mm -hmm. And uh, that led us to, (laughs) that led us here, man. That's how many was one of them. That led us here. So So basically it's like, you know, the feeling of the, this religious community that she find the, well, I think we've, I've been there, you know, I've I've been in that boat and um, I could definitely relate to your mom Mm. because as I said, like, you know me, I grew up in, I kind of, I don't know if we grew up in church, but we used to go to church just as like children. Mm. But where I really, really, really tapped in deeper was in my early twenties, you know, and it was, it was the same thing. It was about like this forgiveness and like Christ loves you. And, you know, so I went in and I was like, oh my God, I'm really loved. Like, Mm. even though I'm not getting the love from, you know, my parents, the the love that I want Mm. and all of these things, God still loves me. I'm I'm still, Mm. I'm still worthy of his love, you know, so definitely could relate to her. But do you find, do you think that these religious organizations uses this message and to pray on the vulnerable? Recently? I am have I've come to have this conversation because me and my cousin were talking about addiction. Mm-hmm. 
because I have an addiction. I'm, I I have an addictive mind, first mm-hmm. of all. I was born like that. Every time I get me something, I just pull for it. And uh, I was thinking about how all, when I look at the way my parents, or specifically my mom, because my dad was more like, there's certain things he wouldn't give it to. Mm-hmm. But my mom was in all fours, completely abandoned. And I, I was thinking about how a lot of her reactions to certain things were the same reactions when you think about an addict. Uh, every time, you know, she has any sort of emotional turmoil, she like will put on a tape. Um, every time uh, she's stressed out, she'll start praying like intensely. And she'll start trying to control every spiritual aspect of everything around herself. Wow. Uh, she'll like try even to control me. Like your skirt's too short. Your your underwear, I can see the line of your underwear. You want the Holy Spirit to bless you because now she's stressed about her own spiritual life. Uh, she'll you know, go into these sort of spiritual frenzies like she's crying and screaming, crying all the time. And it gives her that emotional high mm-hmm. that creates the dopamine that she mm-hmm. needs in her brain mm-hmm. until she comes down again. Mm-hmm. And then her reality comes face to face to her that she still has to pay bills. <laughs> she still has to deal with her husband. That's annoying. She still has two kids mm-hmm. that are neurodivergent that are rubbing, running up and down the house, repeating the same sentence for an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she doesn't know how to stop them. Mm-hmm. So she's still facing that, you know, all the ills in her life are still the ills in her life. And so eventually she will seek that emotional high, that spiritual high again. And so, yes, I do think that maybe some churches do it consciously, maybe some do it unconsciously. In the church that I was, I think that I don't think it was done consciously. Mm-hmm. I think that the church system in itself, the way it was established over mm-hmm. the years with the fathers of, you know, a spiritual revolution, mm-hmm. they've brought things into religion mm-hmm. with psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I took like the beginning of a course in uh, Concordia uh, just before COVID mm-hmm. that was about the start of um, of how U.S. Christianity was established in the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I learned about was the anxious bench. Mm-hmm. And the anxious bench was... Uh, when they would have these sort of tent meetings and they would have benches at the front of the the stadium or the pulpit Mm -hmm. and they would switch from preacher to preacher. One preacher would come and preach, 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 preach and get like people, you know, emotionally aroused and like, amen, amen. Mm -hmm. And then when he he would preach until he gets tired and then he would not give the crowd a break. The next one would take over and continue preaching, preaching. And they would invite people, especially women, because yeah. women were considered to be a bit more emotional, yeah. to come to the front and re like reach this sort of cli- like climax, this climax yeah. that would then feel like the Holy Spirit is amongst us. Mm. Those of you who want to be forgiven, come. And this is what became the altar call. Wow. And so that was one thing that I learned. And I said, you know what's crazy is that I grew up being told how psychology is of the devil. Mm. And yet everything that we do is, is from based psychology. psychology because <laughs> the preacher who came up with this thing, I can't remember which one in this. I would have to go look at my book one, but he was a psychologist. And there's a lot of psychology yeah. in the way we, we do church. And when yeah. people go to seminary, they, they'll tell you, they're like, yes, a lot of the mm. way of the, the, we teach the Bible 
Yeah. Puis ça, c'est une chose que, in our church, uh, a lot of people will fight against the, the, what I just said about um, seminary and psychology because our preachers don't go to seminary. The preachers, most of the preachers that are in this message, or all of them, if not, don't go to seminary because the prophet speaks against it. He says that it's sort of like indoctrination. But then to realize that a lot of the things that he's not a, I would I allowed myself to delve in, into it, you know, years after. A lot of the things that he preached about, he did himself. So, but isn't it like that though? Like, it's I, I feel like sometimes in these in these religious organization, it's really about like um, it's follow what I say and not what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, bro, like what's going on? But Sephora, tell me at what moment did it come to you that this is a cult? And how did this affect? Obviously, I have an idea of how it affected you, but can we dive into the effects of yeah of it? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things because at the time, uh, if I want to talk about how it affected me, I could say, like I told you, when I was eight years old, uh, when I was a kid, yeah, it, it affected my relationships. It affected the way I viewed the world, and. Eventually, what I plan for myself as a human being, how I plan to live in society, what I plan to do. And because everything was so doomsday all the time in my family home specifically, um, I didn't plan anything. (laughs) I was just going through the motions. Like, I have to go to school. I'll I'll go to school. Uh, I wanted to work with animals. I did want to do that. But... It was almost like if I didn't do it, I could always end up somebody's wife and just have kids and, you know. It's like, to me, it didn't really matter what my existence turned out to be. And that's also in part because I was extremely dissociated from myself as a survival, uh, a way of survival from all the BS that was happening. Mm -hmm. But so even, you know what triggered a lot of these desires Uh, recently to like start pinpointing things more specifically especially with how it affected my life in the past was the passing of a friend Abdullah yeah and when he passed I was I was back at living with my mom and you know we had the online um of exchange of like memories and everything Mm -hmm. and in all this like I started realizing, like, well, where was I? Like, I know these people in these pictures. These people were my friends, but literally, I'm in no pictures. I was in no school activity. Mm. And I was like, where was I? What was I doing? Mm. I drew a blank of my whole teen years. She's come, she was like, wow. And then I remembered I was spending so much time in the library, especially at Saint Germain. I was always in the library, always. And I realized I was a lot of avoiding people as much as I could or just being there, but mentally being disconnected, mm-hmm. being unpresent of things people tell me. There are things I remember vividly mm-hmm. and there are things I'm just like, Est-ce que participé à ça? Que je allé à cette mm-hmm. When relate. did this happen? Mm-hmm. Because like, all of this was due to the fact that, you know, I didn't really believe that I could make it in school. I was frustrated with my education. I was frustrated with my fam, my home life. And then how it became, it took a lot of back and forth 
for me to eventually come to a point where I was when I was 26 and 27 mm-hmm. to start compiling, let's say, the incident, the evidence of mm-hmm. things that I've seen gone, going on like the past years mm-hmm. and trying to see the manifestation of the power of this message that I've been preached my whole life in the life of the people around me and in my own life and being unable to see it. Mm. You know, we have preachers coming from overseas telling us they raised the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, 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 they prayed for a baby and the baby was mm-hmm. born a, the baby was born a, uh, intersex and the baby turned back to one gender, to mm-hmm. one sex. Mm-hmm. And like telling us all these marvelous things. And I'm like, my mom can't even, even pay her rent. Mm-hmm. What's going on? <laughs> mm-hmm. What's going on? Mm-hmm. So, and other things such as, Realizing that the people in the church don't really care about people. It was kind of like full projection of love. I'm, I'm having a hard time finding the words, but there were so many instances where, you know, I saw somebody say there is no hate like Christian love. Oof. And that hit me oh my in God. a way. I can't remember where I saw this. But that can you say that again? Can you way. say that again? There's there is no, no hate, hate like, like Christian love. love. <sighs> yeah. When mm-hmm. when I first heard that, my friend, he said, "Ah, ah, now I understand." It hits it. Um. Hey, y'all. So here's the thing. As you might know. One of the major things that um, we take seriously or I take seriously is this healing journey that a lot of us are on. And you might have heard also most of our guests talk about their experience with therapy and how it has played a major part in this healing journey. I'm just wondering, how about you? Have you been thinking about therapy, but you're just not sure finding the right fit? Well, guess what? You need to not think anymore. Our sponsors, BetterHelp, is here to help you. You get the chance to fill in a short survey and be matched with a licensed therapist who's trained to listen and to help you in as little as 48 hours. And if after the first few meetups, you still don't feel aligned, you don't need to worry. You can just go ahead and choose another. Get a 10% discount off your first month at betterhelp.com com slash umami that's betterhelp.com slash umami click the link in the show notes below and join the three million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health when experience better help therapist blessings oh my god and it breaks my heart so much you know because a lot of um I will include myself in it. You know, a lot of us that go into this um, religion um, go into it because of the word of love, you mm-hmm. know, because we're taught that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. Mm-hmm. We're taught that mm-hmm. love your neighbor as yourself. We're taught that love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your might. Mm-hmm. You know, we're taught that God is love, that Jesus is love. The ultimate sacrifice that he did, he did it out of love, you know. And mm-hmm. this this message of love that is supposed to take us on this beautiful journey 
you know, on this journey. Yes. But then, but then humans, we have the audacity to use this love for our own selfish gain. Yes. Yes. That's, 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 that's one of the things where I started wondering uh, like often. And it's because to me, it wasn't the work of restoration because the way it was preached, this message is based on the verses in Malachi 4 that says that God would send Elijah, his prophet, to bring back the hearts of the... And there's a lot of people that argue that this Malachi was uh, John the Baptist. But in my okay. church, they're like, no, he's the second verse. Uh, John the Baptist was there to bring... Anyways, I can't remember all the doctrines, all the like that. <laughs> you know, but the the knowledge behind was that he was he is Malachi four. There's a lot of people that call him the prophet of Malachi four, mm-hmm. and so one of the, the 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 specific of his message was that it was to be restorative, mm-hmm. and that it was supposed to bring you know back the heart of the children to their fathers, whatever, whatever. And me, moi personnellement, je regarde. L'environnement dans lequel j'ai évolué. I watch the environment where I grew. And I, I think about perfect love. And I said this to my mom recently. I said, you know, you're talking about perfect love, but yet for yourself, you don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. For instance, I am having to discuss and almost argue with you as a grown adult in your 60s to, to explain to you why hitting a one-year-old makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas to me, through the perfect love that Christ has brought us, mm-hmm. it would make perfect sense that raising your hand on a baby is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Yeah, but then you have to also remember that there's this scripture that says, do not keep your rod away or something like that. From, we, whoever um, spoils the rod spoils yeah, the child. Uh-huh. Right? So that's but the scripture that rod? they use exactly. Which which, which rod, rod also, are they talking about exactly? Yeah, I always say this. You're talking about us as when you're talking about rod, you would say like a shepherd's rod, right? So I said, déjà vu les bergers là-bas qui tapent le mouton, vraiment. Quelqu'un a déjà vu un berger en train de taper les moutons là-bas avec les bâtons? I never seen this in my life. I have never witnessed a shepherd beating on his sheep no. with his rod. Mm. I've seen him use it guide to them, them aside, them guide together. them, don't go this way, don't mm-hmm. go this way. Mm-hmm. And which better rod? Parce que même la parole de Dieu is called a rod. That's it's right. Called a, it's a rope. That's right. So which better rod do you have than your tongue? Than your tongue. Yeah. So why not use words to speak to your children yeah. and instill wisdom and right. overall empathy? Quand la Bible te dit que the world is dying from a lack of love, mm. le monde se meurt de manque d'amour. Me, I was having a conversation with a taxi driver. Me and my cousin were a taxi and he was talking about how like the situation in Haiti is, and especially like, if, I don't know if you've watched the news, but Haiti's in turmoil again. Mm-hmm. Never ceases, for the rest. C'est mon père qui trouve le repos, sérieusement. Ah! But they started talking about the children. Yeah. I was like, when you see an 11-year-old with a long-ass AK-47 or, like, automatic rifle in his hand, and Mm. he talks about how he doesn't care about anybody, and do you think that there's 
any kindness, love, uh, security that has ever been offered to this child for the 11 years of his life for him to end to up To get here. to that place, yeah. To get to that place? Yeah. That child was first abandoned yeah. by Haiti and not Haiti the land, Haiti the people. Yeah. yeah. That child was abandoned first by Haiti the people mm. so that he has no care and no attachment and no empathy and no compassion mm. for seeing Haiti the people die. Because mm. Haiti the people left him to his demise. Mm. And so when you have a nation of people, for me, who are raised to expect more of children than they actually expect of themselves, mm. of adults, that are unforgiven. Uh, my mom used to tell us, if I tell you something three times and you don't do it, the next time I'm going to beat you. I have been telling my mom things over and over <laughs> and over. And we're both adults. And if you now, were if to, I were to pull same, out my belt, mm-hmm, what would happen mm-hmm, to me? Mm-hmm. Eh? Mm-hmm. Why, Jesus, Marie? Why? My mom would my mom my mom would my mom she would drown both of us together. She would <laughs> she'd be like this is the last of us. Of us. This is the last of us because oh. she wouldn't be able to survive and she wouldn't let me live. <laughs> live it down. Girl. One time, you know, I told her this. I told her, I was like, because she got me so mad once and I said, Mom, say quoi? I I made it one time I had to make make a, a vow to God to God that before I ever ever let enough rage get into me that I would think of raising my hand to you I would cut my hand off because mm. that's not the kind of curse that I want on me but please I beg make it easy because <laughs> this woman knows how to shut me out man like I said, she's my biggest love, but my biggest heartbreak. So mm-hmm. it's um, through what happened with this, and throughout this whole story of like coming to church and growing up in this church and having to repress constantly who I was up until the time where I did it. And I'm going to tell you the story of how I came to this break. Because I said, la question avait mené là, but I kind of took a detour, but I'm going to tell you. Go but ahead, it, it was through trying to, moi, j'ai un cerveau analytique, I have to understand why, how. And like, I started taking into account my actions at some point. It was like, but I'm not a bad kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't a bad kid. Like, I wasn't, I was like, even if I did see, like, a lie too, like, I'm, you know, I was a kid. Like, even if I did this, and I used to think, what is that ill? Because I used to have that ill, that sorrow that I was carrying all the time. Mm-hmm. And I would take my life into consideration. I was like, I had a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. No, no, sorry. My parents sent me to school. Mm-hmm. They paid for my, they gave me clothes. They fed mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I have a job. Like, I get to travel. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Why is it that I still feel I was way. constantly going to the prayer line and asking them to pray for me because yeah. I was fighting depression? Yeah. I was always scared of falling into depression. And the reason why I was always scared of falling into depression was because I felt so bad 
all the time. Yeah. I was like, if I get depressed, what is it going to be like? Because mm. I'm already fighting these demons every day. Mm. I feel like I'm almost drowning all the time. And in 2012, I had this job and it was just after some of my family came from Haiti after the earthquake. And mm. so it was eight of us living in a, in a two and a four and a half. Mm. So we had two bedrooms, one bathroom, mm. and it was eight of us in there. And moi, j'ai grandi, you know, I had my own bedroom and my mm. own thing. Mm. It's not like they were, you know, they were very respectful. They were very like, like they're in my, my, I'm sharing bedroom with my cousin and everything. But it, 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 it's, uh, on, it started this work where I realized I was like, I was waking up every day. I was uncomfortable. And I started like burying myself in watching like videos online and like being online all the time. And it, I, it would settle me a little bit for the moment. And then I would wake up in this bubble of anxiety where I just felt like every, anything could go wrong at mm -hmm. any moment and I could die. Just mm. like if I was, if I were to think like five minutes in the future, I would die. That's how mm. I felt. I don't know how to explain it, but it was this constant dread yeah. pressing on my heart. Yeah. And I felt guilty too, because I didn't want my family to feel like it was because of them mm -hmm. that I was feeling like this. Mm -hmm. But this is, I think, now that I understand, probably one of the first real neurodivergent burnouts that I had, where just the presence of people and just sound mm -hmm. in itself. Constant. Constant, constant overwhelm of yeah. everything. The wind on my skin pissed me off, mm -hmm. just to tell you. Wow, wow. And I would leave the house and sit in my car. Like I would leave the house in advance just to sit in my car and cry and just wonder what the heck is going on with me. I couldn't listen to the radio. Couldn't. And what I did is I started listening to messages of the prophet on Buku. Mm -hmm. And it, it felt like it was the only thing that, and that's why when I talk about addiction, when you mm -hmm. have the mm -hmm. peak of mm -hmm. not feeling good and you feel like the devil mm -hmm. is attacking you from mm -hmm. all sides, it's like, it's a trial, mm -hmm. you know? And to me, that's what it was. It was a trial. Mm -hmm. and But it was more intense than anything that I felt before. And at this point, I really thought I was losing my mind. Mm -hmm. I really thought I was losing my mind. I thought I was going crazy. I would go to work and I would leave my cubicle because I was working in sales then. And I would go hide in the bathroom and call my mom or call my aunt uh, from Haiti because she was she, she was home then mm -hmm. in Canada. But I would call her and because I'm like, they're elders, they can pray for me. Mm -hmm. I would call my uncle and ask mm -hmm. him to pray for me. Mm -hmm. And he would pray for me, pray for me. And it would make me feel good to know that there are people who feel for me, mm -hmm. but it didn't take away the dread. Yeah. So I had to live headphones where I would constantly block out every other sound but the voice of the prophet. I couldn't go into malls. I couldn't listen to the radio. I was literally paralyzed in my life. And I don't know if they realized that. This is why they let me go, but the job eventually told me my contract was ending, so I, I was let go. And it felt like a release because then I realized I didn't have to leave the house. Wow. But the idea of staying in the house with people there every day, all day, was became even more scary. So then I ran away and I went to my uncle's house and I stayed there for like a month. And I started thinking about 
all the things that were going on in my mind. First, I was having what what kind of felt anxiety was also sort of like a queer awakening mm. where I was sort of like, and then I blamed myself because it was while I was on the internet that I saw across the video of like supposedly queer people. And I was like, I, the video was so heartwarming and beautiful. Mm. I was like, why would they have to go to hell mm. for being two consent, consenting people Mm-hmm. who want to be in love with each other mm-hmm. while I know there there are literally people who have sexually abused children mm-hmm. who are being told that they can make it to heaven because they, they, they ask God for forgiveness mm-hmm. and the way judgment was dispersed was so unfair yeah. at this point I was like who decides all of this first of all who decides all this and these little yeah. questions started trickling in my mind so yeah. this also kind of like rose my anxiety because like i'm starting to doubt <gasps> i'm starting to have doubts <gasps> about the message this is terrifying that's terrifying right? and then yeah the, the doors of hell are like opening are opening because yeah. mm-hmm. i'm allowing my thoughts to go into mm-hmm. these dangerous directions mm-hmm. and so by the midst of 2012 i went to a summer camp that the that they were hosting Mm-hmm. And it was uh, in the, the USA. And mm-hmm. they offered, because the person who built, they built this big compound, because they're friends with billionaires. He has a friend mm-hmm. that's a billionaire who helped him big, build this huge compound that has like a lake where like I did jet ski for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could, I went shooting. I was a very good shooter. I have a good aim. I was told. The okay. guy didn't believe, like, are you sure you can first time holding a rifle? I was like, yes, well, it's my first time. <laughs> um, I did a uh, go-kart for the first time. I wow. did, uh, what do you call this thing where you go shooting paint at people? Um, anyways, paintball? Paintball. I did paintball for the first time. So, you know, it was a good experience in all because it was created for like to be a youth camp and have like all these fresh experiences for, for people from around the world. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that struck me, well, two things struck me. On the way there, we saw a big rainbow on the mm. on the street, and I have a picture of it on my Instagram still. Mm. And I still have the caption where I was like, "This is a sign from God, and you know something great is gonna happen mm. while we go to Jeff and blah 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 blah." And while I got there, the great thing that happened is that I saw a bunch of queer kids in the sky, mm. and. At the time, I felt kind of guilty because I'm like, you, you know, you shouldn't assign people as sexuality. But I was like, come on. Where there's <laughs> certain things, there was literally a kid there that in, told me she felt so uncomfortable in women's clothes. And I say that in entre guillemets, mm-hmm. but that she, the, all the clothes that she wore were men's clothes. Like, for instance, all her skirts were actually men's jeans that she sold into skirts. Mm. All her sleeping clothes were basketball shorts that she sold into skirts. Wow. And it kind of hit, like, I was like, that's kind of like going a lot of ways to create a sense of comfort with your identity Mm -hmm. in order to fit into this. Yeah. Sort of, and just like me, you know, when the talk of like getting married and like finding a husband and what kind of men we're into came up, mm-hmm. 
awkward, you know, mm. uncomfortable. And we kind of like got into this little kinship where I was like, in my head, I was like, I see you, you know? Mm. And it's not something that I could admit out loud to myself just yet, but it, yeah. it created curiosity. And I was like, yeah. okay. And then I saw another kid who obviously everybody perceived as queer, mm-hmm. but he had a lot of mannerisms and very, you know, mm-hmm. effeminate. Mm-hmm. I hope the word isn't offended. Anybody? I'm a gay too, I can say. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but um. it was very, very, a lot of mannerisms. And when we had to pick teams to play volleyball, mm-hmm. none of the boys really wanted to have him because he was very flamboyant and everything. And I could see them laughing at him. And in my head, with experience that I have of seeing people noticing queerness and speaking about it and seeing little things like uh, the way he walks, the way he carries himself, uh, blah, blah, blah. We're making little sly comments and mm-hmm. jokes about people that they perceive as queer, mm-hmm. but we'll continue to call them brother and shake their hands while believing a message in which the prophet says that queer people are incarnate devils. Yeah. So to me, watching this whole thing unfold was a bit like, what's going on here? Is yeah. he your brother? Is he not your brother? Is he like an incarnate devil that like kind of, because he's praying like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. He's going to the altar like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. He's taking communion with the rest of us. Mm-hmm. He's carrying his Bible in his little, you know, Midwest cowboy outfit like the mm-hmm. rest of y'all. Yeah. So, and what is it? He's just more, you mm. know, bent wrist than, yeah. than, than y'all. Than, than y'all, yeah. yeah. He's just a little bit more how you do it. So I was seeing all of this and just taking it in, taking it in. And the sort of, in, now at the time, and now I would say emotional because I realized it was a lot of emotions, but the sort of spiritual high, a quest that I was on when I went, I didn't feel, it wasn't fed. and. That kind of was a turning point for me. Okay. I didn't realize it at the time. It was a turning point where I was getting more and more and more and more detached. And I remember seeing as we were going down, there was a little road there where we could walk down to go to the where all the activities were taking place at the camp. And I just saw a sea of women walking with long jean skirts and tennis shoes. And that's mm-hmm. a combination that I already hate in mm-hmm. itself. But with long ass braids just running down their ass, and it it made me think of how the prophet says that when because he said he had a vision of the bride of Christ, okay, and she was from every nation and every and like everybody had hair to the back of their feet, and I'm like, I have an afro. <laughs> I, mean, I guess I'm like, not part of the bride. <laughs> you know, like unless I I have locks, and then no one, no woman in this church is gonna lock their hair. Mm-hmm. So unless I have locks and I have like extensive hair, I'm not going to no rapture with hair down my running down, brushing the back of my feet or my like. Mm-hmm. And I was it like, doesn't make I mean, sense I, to you. It didn't make sense, and I'm looking at them and I'm like, it's so uniform. Ça m'a fait penser à l'église like the Latter Day Saints church out of compound, mm-hmm. and I was like. What is what's all going these conflicting? On? <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? Why the first look? It didn't look attractive. I was like, mm. I don't like this. Mm. Just this conformity, this sameness of this homogeneous way me. of living. Yes. being. I'm like, I can't even tell who's who. Mm-hmm. No one here has a personality that's showing. Mm-hmm. No one here has an essence. Everybody's just trying to be 
as by the stature, because the prophet has a, a message called the stature of a perfect man. But he's just trying to be this perfect image of Christ. And how do we attain this? Because everybody's interpreting Christ in their own way. In their own way. Well, I I eventually took that decision because all these things came to a crux where I was just like, I can't keep ignoring and running away from, because that's never been me as a person. And at this point, it was so intense that I felt like I was betraying myself. I really felt like I was betraying myself. I was like, why am I trying to come? Like everything in me is rebelling yes. against this. And yet I'm trying to shove it down. Yes. And I had to stop. And when I stopped going to church, the day that I stopped, it wasn't out of, it was, to me, it was kind of maybe temporary. It's like, I just have to mm-hmm. figure it out. Figure it exactly. And, and that's how we always feel like, yeah, I just need some time away to just, Put my thoughts together and see what's going I on. I need to figure it out. Yeah. But it's the reaction that I got from the church mm. afterwards that mm. cemented my decision, decision to not go back. Uh, the way the pastors approached me afterwards, one of the pastors told me, saw me at a wedding and he's like, oh no, not you, sister. Not you, sister. And I know the reason why is because I had a good relationship with the youth. And supposedly a great influence on the youth and then the other one sent two deacons to my house to tell me that i would be removed from under the protection of the blood if i didn't return to church and that the or maybe they twisted his words i don't know but i was told that the dogs of hell would come after me if i didn't return to the church and they asked me what was the reason why you left what is it that you want that you don't have you want money We'll pray for you to have money. <laughs> husband? We'll pray for you to, for God to give you a husband. <clears throat> and I was like, how futile, how futile and useless of a quest. Wow. Money and a husband. Wow. As if I am the most unempty minded creature human. human. And I've, I was insulted. Yeah. And then they told me that, what do they tell the pastor? I was like, tell him what he wants. He's like, but he's going to remove you under the blood. You're going to be left at the mercy of the devil. I oh. was like, he can do what he feels that he needs to do. Oh. It's his decision. And they insisted on this about three, four times until they realized I wasn't going to budge. And they left my house. And... I realized then I was like, there's absolutely zero no love. No love. Zero love in the whole thing, the whole organization, the whole movement, the whole there is zero love there. So, so you you speak yeah. on something so deep because like I, I left church. I left church twice. <laughs> Actually, three <laughs> times, three times, three freaking times. The three different churches. Yeah. Actually, the first time I left was because I moved, you know, and then I was mm-hmm. just like, ah, you know, that's my chance to kind of like escape. Um, <laughs> and then I ended up in a church. And then from there, yeah, that particular church, I was there for five years. And, um, you know, when I left, whatever I left, I literally had to, I didn't have that bad of a of an experience, but I had to tell the pastor that it was never my goal to remain in this space. Because it was like a constant thing of like, oh, stagnant, 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 stagnant. Why? Why? Stay, stay. Why? Stay. Why? Stay. You know, and it's just like, bro, 
I just feel like it's time for me to go. Like my my soul is telling me to leave. I could sense it, you know. Um, and I had to tell him that. I had to be like, I don't want to be rude, but I think I need to tell you. Like since I came into this church, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this was not the place where I knew that I would be in church. That was at that time. That was my my whole thing. But I knew that was not my church. And so I left there. And literally, when I left there, I was going through some severe mental health challenges. And I think it was, I read something, I read something, I feel like you posted it, where um, the person is like, when a person leaves church, and they go through, they go through things, you know, it has nothing to do with the devil or um, them being out of the blood or whatever that they want to say. It's anxiety, fact that you've been in a certain setting for so many years, for so long. Coming out of this setting, obviously, your system is going to act. It's going to be what's going on. It's just a natural process that your body, your emotions, your soul is experiencing, you know? And Mm -hmm. I always ask myself, and I went through whatever I went through, and I still went back to church. And I went back to this one (laughs) church. But the thing with this church is that I I, I did receive a lot of help because the pastor was a psychologist, um, and she helped me to a certain point. You know, and then one of the things that I asked myself was, why is it that when a person makes a decision to leave, why do they take it so personal? Why do the pastors and the leaders make it seem as if it's about them? Why can it not just be about me? Why is it that it's 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 me? It's my decision. Or why do we have to go through a whole leap of like toxicity, 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 that word, <laughs> that word. Why do we have to that go word. through that and trauma before we make a decision that we're going to leave? Why does it have to get to that point? If my spirit is telling me that it's time for me to go, I'm going to listen because time and time again, when I did not listen, drama. This is where personally I make the link between the way we practice religion here in the West specifically and through American missionaries kind of have been projected in other countries too, but it's white supremacy because we can't forget that the Bible that we read were translated by people that were white supremacists for a lot of them. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in today. We do hope that you learn a thing or two out of this episode. Kindly follow us on all of our social media platforms and yo, something great is happening. Look out for our website coming out fall 2022. Take care. See you next Thursday.